Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Charlie Matessian, in for Scott Bland this week. This week on Nerdcast, Donald Trump wades into the midterm elections bigly because there's no other way he could do it, right? Plus, from 2018 to 2020, we'll take a look at the election map and why there may be many, many more battleground states in the next presidential election than there have been in recent presidential elections. I'm excited about this one, so stick around. A reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned for the end of the show when we'll have a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin. We're taping this segment a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, August 2nd, so it's all up to date as of then. Okay, let's get started. I want to welcome our guest this week. First, Nerdcast regular and Politico White House reporter Nancy Cook. Hi, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome back. Uh, And we've also got Politico's Burgess Everett, Maine's favorite son, in the studio. We usually have you by phone. It's great to have you in the studio. Welcome back to you too, Burgess. Thanks for having me. Uh, The advantages of a Senate recess. So let's go to our first data point, 100. Donald Trump's re-election campaign will send money to 100 Republicans running in House and Senate races, or at least that's what they say. So, Nancy, you reported this week about how the president has jumped into the governor's race in Florida. Uh, So let's start there. Describe the rationale and describe the playbook that the White House is using. Yeah. So basically, um, they have decided, well, a few things. You know, Trump feels like he has a lot of power, particularly um, with these Republican primaries. And so he jumped into the Florida governor's race you know, just through a few tweets this summer. And then this guy, Ron DeSantis, who was behind in the polls, saw this huge bump up in the polls. And he was running against this guy, Adam Putnam, who is a longtime office holder in Florida. You know, people really know him. He had worked, I think, on the Agriculture Commission. Anyway, this guy, DeSantis, uh, who's a congressman, but he saw this huge bump up from this Trump support. And I think the White House has been very encouraged, not just with that example, but with a few other examples in South Carolina and some other places where they feel like candidates have gotten a huge boost from either Trump, you know, doing a campaign rally in their state or from him endorsing folks over Twitter. And so I think the White House feels like the president is going to play a huge role in the midterms. And what's interesting is that You know, DeSantis really went very far, not just in talking about Trump policies that he supports, but really went far in showing that he was like totally aligned with the president on everything. He released this commercial early this week that it was kind of this jokey commercial where his wife narrated. Everyone knows my husband, Ron DeSantis, is endorsed by... And he had his children, his very small children. One of them was pretending to build a wall with blocks. Build the wall. He was reading Trump's book, The Art of a Deal, to another. Then Mr. Trump said... You're fired. 
I love that part. And so it just shows that, you know, it's not just it's a two way street. It's not just Trump, uh, you know, going out and helping people. But also, I think there's a you know, I think he really likes it when people show a certain amount of loyalty and, and fealty to his agenda. And I think that that really helped him. And then Trump went to Tampa on uh Tuesday night and mentioned DeSantis several times in this huge rally, which I feel like the White House really felt like gave him this huge boost. Well, what's amazing to me about Florida is the wreckage, the post-Trump wreckage uh, across the state. And what I mean by that is Trump first deals a humiliating defeat to the most important Republican in Florida, the guy who's really the the godfather of the modern Republican Party in Florida, Jeb Bush. Then he also deals a severe blow to Marco Marco. Rubio's uh, uh, ambitions. And now he goes in and upends the governor's race. And this is all within just a couple of years and upends the governor's race because uh, Adam Putnam, I remember when he was like a young up and comer in, in the house, I think I think he got elected in his twenties or something, and he was destined for for stardom. And then he ended up leaving Washington and going to Florida because he thought it would be a better path to then go statewide office and ultimately become governor of Florida. Well, now that's all out the window, all because of Donald Trump. Is that something that the White House embraces? Are they proud of that? Do they try to do that in different states? I don't think they necessarily tried to do it, but I think they're thrilled by the development, and I think that we're going to see um, them and the president really try to capitalize on this moving ahead. You know, today I'm I'm flying to Pennsylvania with the president. There's a rally there. There's a rally in Ohio. You know, Trump himself last Friday told Sean Hannity on his radio show that he's going to be out in the two months before the midterms, you know, six or seven times a week. So I think that he really sees an opening. And I think it also just shows, you know, t- Trump so dominates the conversation in Washington. But I think it shows that even in these other states, Trump has just really come to dominate the lens of politics and the lens of these primaries. And that's true both for Democrats and Republicans, right? Like Democrats are responding to Trump and their platform is so much against what he stands for. Whereas Republicans who are embracing him, you know, are seeing some gains. Think of how much you saw Ron DeSantis on Fox News defending Trump for months and months and months. I mean, this is not like an accident. He just loves seeing that people defend him. But let's go a little deeper then into these House and Senate races that Nancy's talking about. Uh, Burgess, it seems like two very different pictures when it comes to the House and Senate. Yeah. Uh, With Republicans uh, on the Senate side thinking even that not only is it not going to be a terrible year for us, that we might even pad our majority. Yeah. I mean, the the Senate map is just terrible for Democrats. uh, But what's been interesting is it's it's actually developed – more nicely than them for them than they ever could have expected. Uh, Trump's campaigning in Pennsylvania, I find that an odd decision. I think it's probably related to Barletta being a big defender of his because you talk to anyone in both parties, if they're candid with you, they say Republicans have absolutely no chance in this Senate race against Bob Casey. So I think most people would prefer to see the president campaigning in a handful of these battleground states that they actually have a chance of winning in uh, rather than Pennsylvania. But, uh, you know, this sort of goes back to the loyalty thing that we were just talking about. So for our listeners that haven't paid really super close attention to the Senate map, like what are three important races that would good that would be good for them to uh, learn a little bit about? Well, uh, as someone who covers the Senate every day, I keep a really close eye on the incumbents. Uh, and so there's, there's three or four, depending on who you talk to, incumbents that are in big trouble on the Democratic side. Um, so I would name... Uh, Bill Nelson in Florida, who's facing Rick Scott, uh, the governor, who has a ton of money. Uh, Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota. Uh, Claire McCaskill, 
uh, in Missouri and Joe Donnelly in Indiana. So these are sort of the, the four incumbents uh, on the Democratic side that are in the most trouble. And there's one Republican, Dean Heller of Nevada, who is in trouble. So, Nancy, let me uh, turn this to you then for a second, because uh, I want to get back at something you talked about earlier, because I, I, my first reaction when I heard the statement was, that is utter BS. And so you were talking, not, not your statement, you were talking about uh, the president ta- telling Sean Hannity he was going to be out on the road six to, in district six to seven times a week. Like, to me, that prospect is ludicrous. First of all, he's not going to do it. And and. Uh, that's not going to happen. But also, he was talking about all of these toss-up races where he was going to play a role and go campaign. And to me, I also felt that that was ludicrous because in most of those toss-up races, he's not an asset. But maybe you can walk me through the thinking there in the White House about what kind of role he'll play in the midterms. I think we should back up a little bit to say that the problems that have plagued the White House sort of throughout these whole two years, like teams of rivals, people, you know, backstepping one another, they are going to also play out with the midterm elections. So, um, you know, there's a few different camps of people involved. Not everyone agrees on things. Not everyone agrees who the president is going to endorse. The president himself frequently ignores the advice of his political advisors. Um, And there's like a few different political fiefdoms there. You have, you know, the White House political shop, which is run by this guy, Johnny DeStefano, who used to work for John Boehner and Bill Stepien, who's a Jared Kushner ally. You have outside people like Corey Lewandowski has been showing up a lot lately with David Bossy there on the plane. And then you have Nick Ayers, who works for the vice president, who is also a very savvy political operative. And these folks don't always agree on what the president should be doing. Um, And then the president also frequently ignores them. So I feel like I'm sure the president is getting very conflicting advice about what races he should endorse. I know there's been some debate internally about like some of the races that he should endorse, some he should sit out. But the president, I feel like, is riding this high now where he, because of the DeSantis thing, thinks that he is like, you know, the god of the primaries. And the White House political shop, you know, is sort of trying to pull him back on some of these things exactly for the reasons that you mentioned that, you know, not everyone wants to see him like he is a liability in some districts and he is not helpful. But I think the tension will be, you know, can they pull him back and control him? Can they just have him endorse people where it's helpful? Uh, And sort of how do you manage Trump? Like, isn't that sort of always the question with this White House? Like, how do you manage Trump? And now it's just in, turn, in the context of the midterms. Or just put that in, uh, in the terms of the Senate map. Uh, what kind of role does Trump play in some of these uh, closely contested races? You can even go back to before he was president to see how he was messing with some of these races. Uh, he interviewed Joe Manchin of West Virginia for a cabinet job in December of 2016. If he had picked him, that that race is going to the Republicans. They would appoint a Republican uh, and, and he would... They, they would have already picked up that seat. Now, Manchin is the favorite to win re-election in a state that Trump won by 42 points. So he, the, there's been a long road of decisions in races like Montana, North Dakota, where the president has sort of affected the Republican trajectory and made it more difficult for them. Now, uh, the one good thing, you know, you talk about him, him being an anchor in, in suburban house districts, swing districts. He's still very popular in places like North Dakota, uh, Indiana, Missouri, um, even Montana, uh, even though John Tester is, is looking pretty safe there, and, and in West Virginia, where Manchin looks fairly safe. So he can make a difference in those states because they are very conservative, and the Democrats are the outlier there. 
Uh, it's a big difference between Republicans who are defending their seats in safe, I mean, in swing districts. Okay, so then walk me through the scenario. Uh, let's imagine then that Republicans do pad their majority a little bit and actually grow it against all odds. And Mitch McConnell goes from having a uh, razor thin majority to say two, three, four, five seats. What changes in the Senate? What, what will that look like with a bigger Republican majority? Just the dose of daily drama is, is hard to overstate, and a lot of people don't see it. They're not watching C-SPAN. They're not standing outside the lunch. But one absence can make votes very difficult. I mean, right now, John McCain is being treated for brain cancer. Republicans control 50 votes. They can confirm nominees with 50 votes. But what that means is any Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, uh, Rand Paul can say no, or I want I want more time, or give me this vote later in the year, whatever. You can make a demand, and the leadership kind of has to meet it on some of these uh, nominees. So if you have 53, 54 seats, all of these nominees are fairly easy. The biggest example, obviously, right now uh, would be someone like Kavanaugh. If there's a third Supreme Court nomination uh, in the next two years and Republicans keep the Senate, that would be much, much, much easier. I mean, a lot of us already think Kavanaugh will be confirmed, but Collins and Murkowski haven't said how they're going to vote. So there's some uh, intrigue there. That intrigue goes away if Republicans get uh, a larger majority. There's also if the president wants to shake the cabinet up, you want more Republican votes. Um, you know, he wants to con- do conservative judges. You want more Republican votes on all of these folks. Uh, like Pruitt at EPA, there's an acting administrator there. The Republican leadership doesn't want to have a vote on a confirmation of a cabinet nominee there because it would be really painful because Susan Collins is more pro-environmental than the rest of the caucus. So it may not seem like a big deal if Republicans pick up a seat or two, but in the day-to-day governing of Washington, it would make a huge difference. And the White House is very, very aware of this. Like it was, It's interesting to me in conversations that I've been having with them recently because I figured that they would be so focused on the House because you know they're expected to potentially lose the House, and if they do, and the Democrats control the Oversight Committee, they'll really bury the president under you know subpoenas and potentially impeachment proceedings. But when I talk to folks in the White House, just in terms of the governing, as Burgess said, they're really obsessed with the Senate map, which is you know much smaller number of races, but they've really been staying in close touch with. Um, you know, Senate offices, Senate campaigns, just to get a sense of like how folks are doing, um, because they do, as you said, really view that as key, given the slim majority and and sort of the judicial appointments that they want to make. They view that as a key thing to keep control of. So it sounds like if if there's one thing that Washington, official Washington, and that includes the Trump administration and, and Democrats and everyone, if there's one thing that people seem to be agreeing around, it's that the House goes Democratic and the Senate stays Republican. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems to be where everyone is right now. If that outcome is true, what does Washington look like starting in 2019 where you have a Democratic House and maybe uh, an even more uh, concentrated Republican majority in the Senate? I think you're going to get to a return of sort of gridlock would be my guess. I mean, right. Isn't that what we have now? It's not, actually. I mean, the, the Senate and the House are passing spending bills for the first time that I've really covered Congress, and that doesn't seem like a big deal, but the president hates these catch-all spending bills. He sort of said he might have vetoed one earlier this year. So Congress is sort of working together to get away from a shutdown possibility on that. Now, the border wall is in a separate category. That could still mess everything up. Uh, but, I, I mean, I, I'm one to find a lot of criticism in Congress because it's a very dysfunctional institution, but 
ever since the government shutdown earlier this year in January, they, they have been doing better than they have since in the five years that I've covered the institution. Well, and if Republicans held on to the Senate, you know, as you said, Burgess, they can still confirm cabinet members and they can still confirm judges. And I think, you know, there's no way that the the White House is going to need that Senate majority to confirm some cabinet members. You know, I feel like there's no way that the current cabinet survives as is. Uh, you know, Ryan Zinke at the Interior Department is under a bunch of investigations. You know, we have to wait and see what happens with that. Um, you know, Wilbur Ross has come under fire for some of the the facts that he didn't divest all of his stock and sort of made money off of it when he was in office by doing trading against it. So I, I don't know if those folks will necessarily go, but I feel like we are, you know, there's some lesser but still fishy Pruitt-like situations with the cabinet and the White House is aware of that. And I will put out there that when I was talking about Senate Democrats being in a good position, there is a scenario that they take the majority this year. If it's the worst possible condition for Republicans, if we start going into a recession or something about Vladimir Putin in October or a lengthy government shutdown or the border wall, I mean, there is a path. Uh, Nevada, Arizona, Tennessee, Republican-held seats, Democrats are competing in. If they hold their incumbents and pick up two of those, Chuck Schumer's majority leader. I expect in these Senate campaigns, as things tighten up, you're going to hear Chuck Schumer's name a lot in North Dakota, Indiana, and Missouri to prevent that from happening. Are you suggesting that the senator from New York is unpopular in some of those (laughs) farm states? I actually, you know, when you look at polls, he's not like at a Pelosi level. Um, But the Republicans are, you know, they're looking for a foil. They need a boogeyman. They've tried it with Elizabeth Warren. I'm not sure that's gotten quite as much traction as they expected uh, because she's not the party leader and they're closer to Chuck Schumer right now than they would be Elizabeth Warren. But I I do think you'll see if people start freaking out in Tennessee, you'll see an argument that Jim Bredesen will be a a yes man for Chuck Schumer, Phil Bredesen. Well, we're running out of time here. I, I want to thank you guys for this. I, I learned a ton of things today. Thanks so much for uh, coming in, Burgess. Yeah, huh? no problem. Thanks so much for having me. Nancy's always awesome having you here. Oh, thanks. I love coming here. Be afraid just as long as you stand, stand by me. So darling, darling, More coming up. We'll be back with our next data point in a minute. Money, money. I want more money. True bear markets are like water torture. They just drip, 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 and they just drive you insane. Need a little help understanding the current investment environment? Yeah, whereas a correction is more of like a sharp punch to the face or something. We'll take you to the corner of Pennsylvania Avenue and Wall Street. Yeah, there you go. Buy high, sell low is my motto (laughs) on all of these things. Search for the Politico Money Podcast wherever you listen. With me, Ben White. Our second data point this week, 12 one dozen. As many as a dozen states might be significantly competitive in the 2020 presidential election. Compare that to past elections, recent elections, where there were maybe five or six toss-up states. Why? What's happening? What's changing with the electoral map? That's what our next guests are here to help us understand. David Siders is a national political correspondent for Politico, and he's on the line from New Orleans. David, thanks for being here. Hey, good to be here. And Chris Catalago, White House reporter, big fan favorite here at uh, Nerdcast and Election Junkie, is also here in the studio. Chris, good to have you back on the show. Yeah, it's great to be back. I'm surprised you came back after that. Uh, after the hazing you took the first I time. I know. Nice it's torturous. 
David, I want to start with you. Uh, you had a great story this week uh, that really generated a lot of buzz about the presidential map in 2020. And the piece you did had the headline, the map is different now. So let's start with the basics. How is the map different now and in 2020? Well, I think at the, at the top level, there are two things going on, that the confluence of which is, is really making more states in play. The first is Trump's sweep through the upper Midwest, where states that had been you know, Democratic strongholds all of a sudden flipped. So I'm talking about his victories in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, and is coming very close in Minnesota, which is a, a place he'll compete in in 2020. And then the other thing going on is this more gradual force, these demographic shifts that are really benefiting Democrats in the South and the West. And so more states will come on board in 2020 for Democrats. Those two things together uh, make for a more competitive map. Well, then let's talk a little more about about the specific states, Iowa in particular. So Iowa has been a swing state or at least considered a swing state in the last few elections, but Trump won it pretty handily. But I hear a lot of people now talking about Georgia instead of uh, Iowa in terms of uh, Democratic prospects. I mean, Georgia hasn't voted Democratic since Bill Clinton in 1992, and it's been a pretty solid red state for quite some time now. Uh, Can you say with a, a straight face that it would make more sense for Democrats to make a run at Georgia than, say, Iowa? Well, I, I think you have to start. I mean, you, you can only say that if you believe that swing states don't always stay swing states and that states evolve and change over time. And I think I think there's reason to believe that's true. I mean, I'm not sure that in 2020 we'll be talking about Ohio, which everybody used to talk about as the, the swing state as a swing state. I, I'm not sure Colorado is on the board. Uh, and when you look at just the numbers, uh, I mean, at the 16 election, Trump carried Iowa by nearly 10 points. Uh, in Georgia, his victory was less than six. So if you're looking at, at those numbers as a Democratic consultant, I'm, I'm not sure it's a bad play to push push into Georgia. And I guess your point's well taken because uh, I can remember, uh, you know, when I first started uh, as a political reporter, California was actually in play, uh, which is almost hilarious to think about that that uh, Republicans might make a run at winning California, which is now, the, you know, a blue state citadel. Uh, Chris, so how does Donald Trump see the map in 2020? Take us inside the way the White House approaches this question. So I think the, the thing they always start when they talk about it is it, – they sort of try to boil it down and say this is a lot simpler than you guys make it out to be. Basically, for Donald Trump to win, all he has to do is win the places he already won. And so if you start with that as like your premise, then you talk about them expanding the map. They want to compete in Colorado. They want to compete, as David said, in Minnesota. Um, There's other states uh, like New Hampshire that are out there. And he's doing, you know, he's barnstorming some of these states. I think he's done like 35 rallies already in in uh, in Florida so far from the 2016 campaign uh, through just earlier this week in Tampa. So I think they really see this as an opportunity to expand. They feel like they're on offense. Uh, from the Democratic perspective, you guys were talking about Georgia. I'm really, really intrigued in this governor's race, uh, whether Stacey Abrams, uh, uh, the Democrat in the race, is able to win in the suburbs and also win in rural areas. And I think if that happens, if she can pick up some of those places, um, Democrats are going to be a lot more bullish about that state in 2020. David, one state we have not talked about yet that certainly fits in that you know, new state rising for the Democratic Party mold would be Arizona. And I know that's a state that has long been in the Republican camp at the presidential level. But 
you know, a, a lot of Democrats are very bullish on uh, Arizona prospects. And, you know, when you take a look at the numbers, when you look at the changing demographics in Arizona, that is a state that doesn't seem that far out of reach for uh, the right Democratic nominee in 2020. And I mean, I guess we'll see we'll, we'll see from the Senate races, uh, you know, before then. But Arizona, why aren't we talking about Arizona? Oh, I think it's a reasonable one to talk about. It, it's for Democrats, it presents a, a similar state to the states around it that Democrats have had success in Colorado, Nevada, some of the same influences with Latino voters that, you know, you said California used to be in play. Well, the Latino voters is what changed that in California. And what Democrats suspect ultimately will in a state like Texas, which is not on the map in 2020. Um, but Arizona is one of those that's closer. And I, I think while you look to Georgia and, you know, well, like Chris says, Stacey Abrams and whatnot there, that there's that's looking at a black population being important to Democrats in Arizona. It's really focusing on Hispanics. Well, Chris, you were talking uh, a little bit about the uh, the map and the way and the way tr- the the White House sees it uh, that oh, you know, we'll run the same map and, and we'll win the same way, but that is you know, much a uh, much more dicey proposition than they're letting on. Number one, they lost the popular vote, and number two, there are a handful of states where swings of you know maybe ten thousand, fifty thousand votes would have changed the calculus entirely. Totally, and I think that's where you start talking about candidates, right? The thing that they fear the most, and you know they're not saying this publicly, is the type of candidate that could come and compete with Donald Trump uh, in the Rust Belt that could that could compete for some of those same voters that he was able to win over. Um, someone that could talk to those folks, someone that can kind of span the generations. Um, And so you hear that a lot, sort of the undertone is, uh, you know, he he won there, like you say, by just a few thousand votes. Can someone come in there and with the right message? They're not worried about someone that's going to do well on the coasts. They're not worried about the sort of, uh, you know, direction that the Democratic Party seems to be headed in now. They're worried about um, sort of someone with a with a Midwestern appeal. And that's someone who could compete in those states and expand the map for Democrats and then maybe come into some of the other states we're talking about, like Georgia and and some of these others and, and try to sort of rack up a bigger win. I don't want to put you on the spot, Chris, but our finicky listeners will demand this. Cough up some names. Like who would they, who do you think they're a little bit scared of on the Democratic side? All right. I'm going to absolutely shock you here. And I'm going to say Joe Biden. Yeah. Uncle Joe. Joe Biden. Uh, when it comes to those voters, you know, obviously the, the campaigns he's run in the past don't necessarily uh, instill a, a ton of confidence. Um, you know, we've seen what he's done in a presidential race. But I think just the Obama coalition, his position on um, trade is interesting, given given what the Obama administration did. But but he obviously talks to those voters. He he appeals to them in a much different way, given this the, the sort of lunch bucket background. And so he's someone that could potentially like thread the needle. Um, I know there's probably a lot of people, a lot of doubters um, in that sense. But you you really do hear him. Uh, come up as uh, they don't like to use the word fear, but someone that uh, that could give him some trouble. David, I know you've written a lot about the uh, emerging uh, Democratic field in 2020. What's your sense of of uh, on the other side of, of, of who Democrats are talking about? And in, and in particular, uh, we should note you're at progress, uh, the progressive uh, the annual progressive event Netroots Nation in New Orleans right now. Who are people talking about there? Who are progressives really jazzed up about in terms of 2020? Well. I mean, the, the the names you would expect, and the, there are folks who are coming here, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, but 
as it relates to the map and you know, who's competitive in the Midwest, progressives will remind you every minute that it, it, was, a, it was, as Chris says, a matter of candidate to a great degree in 2016. And, and they say, look, at, you know, Bernie Sanders won several of those Rust Belt states. And had he been the you know, more populist nominee, he could have been the candidate who, who won over the upper Midwest. At, at least that's their argument. So progressives, while wanting somebody to appeal to people in the Midwest, I think also, you know, really recoil at this idea that that person needs to be a, you know, a moderate Democrat in the you know, Clinton or, or even Obama mold and that it can't be a progressive who, who runs there. Okay, so I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, uh, and my Twitter feed is going to get blown up. But l- l- let's let's take the other side of that argument: the idea that Bernie Sanders won these states. Isn't that kind of a specious argument? He won the primaries in the states, which is an entirely different proposition than winning a general election. And that's not to take anything away from Senator Sanders' accomplishment in 2016, which was amazing, and he built a stunning coalition uh, and ran an amazing campaign. But still, winning a state in a Democratic primary is not anything near like winning a tough state in a general. I'm just going to say I agree. I I think that's right. Uh, But I think that's why the reason here is why you won't see progressives immediately rally behind, I don't know, a Tom Delaney or a Western governor or something in the Midwest. Uh, I I don't think the party... You mean John Delaney, right? I'm sorry, John Delaney. that's a congressman running work on his name ID. Our listeners like me also don't know. <laughs> and um, but, I can't believe I, we pay I, I you. <laughs> I think it uh, and probably too much for that performance. Um, I, I just think it suggests that, that that's where progressives are, that they don't see those states as unwinnable with somebody who they don't think they need to run to that kind or that mold of Democrat to win back the Midwest. And I'd just step back and look at some of the dynamics. I mean, the economy right now is doing so well. Um, and I think one of the things I'm really looking ahead to is uh, what happens in terms of the House. Do you have uh, a House that Donald Trump is fighting against or is he able to go into 2020 talking about you know, more victories, more bills being signed, more judges being confirmed? And I think in that case, um, they would take the latter. Um, his, he's very much campaigning on these promises kept. And I know there's some appeal in sort of fighting Nancy, Nancy Pelosi and fighting Democrats. But I think uh, going into the 2020 race by being able to tell folks, particularly in the Midwest, that he's, he's notched victories for them, that the economy is still rolling along if we don't hit the recession that I know is, has been predicted now for a couple of years. Um, I, think, I don't think you could overlook those factors. And speaking of 2020, David, it- Talk to us a little bit about the map before we go out of this segment in terms of uh, are there states that we didn't talk about today? Are there states that you're sort of maybe a little distant at this point, but Democrats are kind of holding out hope? I mean, what about a state like Texas, which, you know, in a lot of ways has become a cliche. And, you know, it's like every four years, Lucy pulls the football away from Charlie Brown uh, when the Democrats get really excited and say, oh, no, we're going to compete in Texas and they get blown out again. I mean, is, is something like that viable in 2020? Well, I think you hear some Democrats at least say that if uh, if Beto O'Rourke can can win, or or even if he comes comes close to defeating Ted Cruz in the Senate race, then that state immediately is in play. There will be so much attention and excitement around 
around that change. And I'm not sure that that's true, that that makes the state immediately in play. But there are some of these states that are, are what would you call them, like pre-competitive states, right, where uh, the parties will make a run or invest some money um, purely for competitive purposes, but not expecting to win. I mean, that happened in California as, as late as George W. Bush. Um, and I think, I think you might see that in Texas. I think more realistically, Democrats look at Texas and say it's a 20, you know, 2030, 2032 proposition, something like that. Uh, David, I want to thank you for taking out all this trouble to uh, go on the phone and uh, walk us through the map in 2020. Thank you. Nice to be here. And Chris, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for doing it. Thank you so much. Driving up and down the same old strip. I gotta find a new place where the kids are hip. My buddies and me, you're getting real well known. Yeah, the Okay, as promised, we're going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan. Megan Matessian, take it away. Our producer is Micaela Rodriguez with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks, Megan. And thanks, listeners. We'll see you next week.